Welcome to Patterns of Care in Breast Cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In October 2007, we surveyed 150 U.S.-based practicing medical oncologists and 50 clinical investigators who specialize in breast cancer. Dr. Hal Burstein and Dr. Lee Schwartzberg helped us develop the survey instrument, and after we put the data together, I met with these investigators to review the findings. To begin, Dr. Burstein discussed the data related to adjuvant systemic therapy, and we started out discussing management of patients with HER2 positive tumors. To begin, we discussed survey data related to the controversial question of treatment of patients with small node-negative HER2-positive tumors, in this case, several variations of patients with tumors that were 0.8 centimeters. This question comes up clinically quite often now because the value of trastuzumab for higher-risk node-positive breast cancer is clearly established. And so the tumor board question that we most frequently encounter for HER2-positive disease relates really to these very small tumors. This is sort of a parlor game that has arisen in many of these conversations. Would you give trastuzumab for a 7-millimeter tumor, a 5-millimeter tumor, a 3-millimeter tumor, and so forth? It is probably true that a lot of this is biology, and many of us have spoken to that and written about that. But size still matters because size is both a reflection of the risk of the biology, that is, more aggressive tumors grow faster and disseminate more quickly, and it also is a reflection of the total cancer burden. And I think that there is a point at which there will be a sufficiently small tumor that the risk probably doesn't make sense to offer extensive adjuvant treatment. Our dilemma is it's very hard to identify exactly where that threshold is. In none of the clinical trials would a patient with an 8-millimeter tumor have been a candidate for treatment when we developed trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. And so at best, what we're making are informed inferences about how their outcomes are likely to be and what benefit they're likely to get. So for this patient type situation, 0.8 centimeter tumor, ERPR negative, node negative, in general, what specific regimen would you usually recommend? So my gut test for whether or not to give trastuzumab has been to imagine the exact same patient presenting two years ago. Would I give this patient chemotherapy? And if I think that chemotherapy would be warranted in a case, then I clearly think that trastuzumab is valuable because most of the literature suggests that the trastuzumab benefit is going to be far more significant than the chemotherapy benefit. I would give this patient chemotherapy and trastuzumab. I think a regimen such as the TCH regimen would be reasonable. However, I more commonly would probably give something like four cycles of AC followed by trastuzumab or even ACTH. And we have actually just activated a clinical trial where we are giving 12 weeks of paclitaxel with trastuzumab followed by the rest of the year of trastuzumab to see if we can just use a single chemotherapy drug for a three-month duration and avoid an anthracycline in these lower-risk patients, lower risk defined by tumor size. So I think there are a variety of approaches one could justifiably use, and I think it's hard to be dogmatic that one is strongly the choice compared to others. Same exact situation, except the tumors ERPR positive. Yeah, actually, I think the same choices are reasonable, though, because there might be some expectation of improvement with the adjuvant endocrine therapy, then it means that as you're following such a patient, you're going to respond perhaps a little differently to side effects that they might be experiencing. So we tried to sort of move the risk up a little bit and see how that affected the choice of chemotherapy to combine with trastuzumab. So if we go from 0.8 centimeters and we move it up to 1.5 centimeters, you know, still everybody's treating, 
but we're seeing, again, sort of a mix between anthracyclines and non-anthracyclines, specifically the TCH regimen. Would you approach a patient like this any differently in terms of the choice of chemotherapy? Would you feel more strongly about an anthracycline, for example? In patients where the risk gets greater, I feel somewhat more strongly about the concurrent use of chemotherapy and trastuzumab as opposed to the sequential use. We don't have definitive data yet, but the comparisons from the intergroup N9831 study, which was ACT versus ACT followed sequentially by trastuzumab or ACT with concurrent trastuzumab, suggest that there is something about giving the drugs concurrently, that is chemotherapy and trastuzumab, that may be particularly useful. So in patients where the risk gets higher, I strongly prefer the concurrent chemo-trastuzumab regimens, which would include ACTH or TCH. Otherwise, I don't think the calculations are fundamentally different. We still principally use anthracycline-based regimens. Anthracyclines are an historically important drug in breast cancer, and comprehensive retrospective analyses suggest that the one group of patients where these drugs really work is in HER2-driven breast cancer. And so I think that they probably still have a role, even with the trastuzumab, though I think all of us are eager to see how the more mature data from the BCIRG trial shape up. That study was never designed to compare the TCH versus the ACTH, in this case they used docetaxel for their T, regimens. Numerically, they look pretty much the same. The differences in clinical events are few, though obviously those data are still maturing. So we move the risk up even more. Now we're talking about a patient with four positive nodes. And again, sort of trying to tease out from you how you view things. Let's say this patient comes to you and TCH has been recommended. Do you say, I'm okay with that, but that's not what I recommend? Or would you say, you know, I really think you ought to think about an anthracycline? I don't see data out there to actually tell you whether to use an anthracycline-based or a TCH-based regimen based on those clinical features. So none of the studies have reported that, for instance, anthracyclines are particularly valuable in younger women versus older women. I suspect what they may be making this recommendation on would be cardiotoxicity risk. Clearly, younger women seem to have lower risk of cardiotoxicity with the anthracyclines. We've not seen a detailed breakout of cardiac risk of TCH as a function of age, though it may be a rare enough event that it's hard to do that. You mentioned the thing about anthracyclines and HER2-positive tumors, and that's going to relate when we start talking about HER2-negative tumors, actually. But the argument that's been made by the CIRG people, including Dennis Slayman, has been that whatever benefit you obtain from anthracyclines, you actually derive from trastuzumab, making anthracyclines unnecessary unless you live in a place where you can't get trastuzumab. Do you buy into that? Well, there may be something to that. Again, we really have insufficient data, I think, to draw a strong conclusion about that. The argument essentially is that trastuzumab is the trump card, and therefore, whatever you give besides trastuzumab may not be relevant. That may be the case, and that's why we feel that going ahead with a paclitaxel trastuzumab trial for low-risk patients makes sense. The same argument could be used to give CMF chemotherapy, and there are places where CMF is still used, and if you gave CMF trastuzumab, maybe you accomplish the same thing. We obviously have less data for that than we do with the docetaxel's carboplatin regimen. So there's no doubt that trastuzumab is something of a great equalizer for all these chemotherapy regimens. And I think ultimately that much of moving forward recommendations will be driven by things like toxicity profiles. 
The last thing I want to ask you about in terms of adjuvant HER2 positive is the older patient. And again, one of the common tumor board questions is the patient with a node negative tumor, HER2 positive, but she's older, 70, 80 years old. And specifically the question, you know, a patient who normally you might be, you know, we're really not thinking about adjuvant chemotherapy, getting back to your sort of the way you approach it. What about trastuzumab monotherapy? So we presented a 70-year-old woman with a 1.2 centimeter ERPR negative, HER2 positive, node negative tumor, and we asked people what they would do, and by far the most common choice was TCH, both with the investigators as well as the docs in practice. But then we also said, suppose this patient comes to you and the first opinion says trastuzumab alone, you know, how do you feel about it? And actually, a lot of people were uncomfortable with that. And I think maybe we might have gotten a different answer if we said 80 or 85. But, you know, people felt pretty strongly about using the chemotherapy in this type of situation. How would you respond? Well, remember that HER2-driven disease is far more frequent in younger rather than older women. So when you're really talking about women in their 70s and 80s, you shouldn't be seeing too much HER2-positive breast cancer. In large registry-type studies, fewer than 5 or 8% of those tumors ought to be HER2-positive. So it's not that common a problem. The other point is that I bet there are relatively few people in your survey who'd actually given TCH to an 80-year-old woman to know what that experience is like. I've given it to some septuagenarians, and it's a tough regimen. So before people sort of say, oh, you know, clearly they're terrified of the cardiac risk, you have to give both of these or have some feel for them. And that's not a trivial chemotherapy regimen to get people through. Again, I think for these older women, it becomes ever more the art of medicine to tease out what are their comorbid conditions, what is their existing cardiac function, and how important are these treatments for them. If it's clear that they're healthy enough to tolerate the treatment, healthy enough that they merit consideration of treatment, then I think any of these would still be reasonable. And these regimens work in older women to the extent that they're at risk for breast cancer recurrence. High MUS and others have shown through retrospective work that chemotherapy works as well in older patients as it does in younger patients if the patients have chemotherapy-sensitive tumors. And so I think that people need more clinical seasoning to really feel strongly that one regimen is preferable to another. So bottom line is, what would you most likely be recommending to a patient like this? 70 years old, 1.2 centimeter, ERPR negative, node negative. Yeah, I mean, I certainly four cycles of AC, then trastuzumab. I guess if you wanted to try the TCH regimen, that would be reasonable. But again, it's not a trivial regimen. So the patient then is coming in with the first opinion being trastuzumab alone. Do you say I'm Uh, okay with that? That would not be my choice if the tumor were ER negative. There really aren't any data to support the role of adjuvant trastuzumab in patients not otherwise given chemotherapy. I have had individual patients who've imagined what the numbers would be and imagined what the benefits of chemo and trastuzumab are and said, well, gee, I'll take the trastuzumab but not the chemotherapy. But again, we are sort of inventing that. At the Singalan panel, they surveyed clinicians across the world to see what clinicians' preferences were. And there was some willingness on the part of clinicians, particularly the European clinicians, to offer trastuzumab monotherapy. That has not been my preference. I'd rather see people get some exposure to the chemotherapy plus the trastuzumab in situations like this. Again, getting up to maybe, say, 80 to 85. Well, again, there ain't that many of these folks, and most of them, you're going to have to look very carefully as to whether their circumstances warrant treatment. I think you could certainly imagine giving someone like that weekly paclitaxel plus trastuzumab, and it's likely that that might be effective, and I think it'll be reasonably well tolerated. Let's talk about HER2-negative tumors and adjuvant therapy for HER2-negative tumors. 
And one of the things we asked about management of patients with HER2-negative disease, of course, is the common situation of ER-positive HER2-negative disease, where clearly aromatase inhibitors have become very prominently utilized in the adjuvant setting for postmenopausal women. And I'm curious what you think about these data in terms of choice of aromatase inhibitors. Obviously, anastrozole and letrozole are by far the dominant agents used, actually more anastrozole, probably because there's longer data. But what do you think about the choice of exemestane, which 6 to 10% of docs made in this situation or utilize? I was kind of surprised at that. Well, you know, these are three commercially available aromatase inhibitors. And If there are clinical differences between these drugs, it's been impossible to really tease them out to date. So on the one hand, I think that any one of these is probably a reasonable clinical choice. Having said that, as you and this audience knows well, there are data for use of both anastrozole and letrozole as first-line or initial adjuvant treatment, and yet we do not have those data to date from trials involving exemestane, though such studies have been concluded, and eventually we will have the data for them. So it wouldn't be my style preference, but I don't think it's a big mistake. Well, again, it gets in this sort of teasing thing out. So again, second opinion, first opinion said exemestane. Do you say that's fine or do you say, you know, I don't know about that? I think it probably wouldn't have been my first choice, but if the patient comes to me six weeks into their treatment and says, oh, I feel great on this drug, I wouldn't derail (laughs) that plan if they're tolerating it. Okay. Well, speaking of feeling great on this drug, we always in our continuing search to ask people about arthralgias, and it's very timely with your new editorial in the JCO about that and the paper that was just published about it. And it's interesting because we consistently have seen this in our surveys that you say to docs, you know, about what percent of people do you think get arthralgias? I say maybe, you know, 30, 40 percent. What percent do you have to do something about it, chain, switch, or whatever? And usually it's in the 5 to 10 percent range. What's your experience been? And can you talk a little bit about this paper that was just published in your editorial? Well, as we're using these drugs a lot in clinic, increasingly we are finding that patients have musculoskeletal symptoms related to the use of aromatase inhibitors. This is actually a pretty old observation. It was first reported in the metastatic literature seven or eight years ago when AIs became widely used there, and now it's increasingly prevalent in the early stage setting. The paper that we were asked to provide a commentary on was a very interesting study of 200 women consecutively screened who were receiving aromatase inhibitor therapy in the early stage setting. The study was actually done at Columbia PNS in New York. And the important methodologic point from this paper was they didn't ask the doctors whether the patient was having arthralgias. They asked the patient. And 80% of patients said, yeah, I'm having arthralgias. Now, musculoskeletal symptoms are enormously prevalent in our society. Lots of people have muscular aches and pains at various times. But what was interesting is that Two-thirds of the patients who were having these symptoms clearly related their onset to the use of the AI. And in fact, half of the patients had begun on their own to take something, whether it was an over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medicine or acetaminophen or something else they were trying to minimize these arthralgias. That says to me that these are clinically real phenomena. And I think that doctors, one in three estimate is something that they're just kind of making up, to be honest. I think that's because that's what we hear about perhaps. But if you say to a patient, how are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm doing fine. And then you say to them, well, you know, many women experience muscular tightness or stiffness or joint swelling or discomfort or achiness. Does that happen to you? Then they say, oh, well, I thought that's just because I was getting older, or I thought that was just some arthritis. And they say, well, no, that's commonly seen in these drugs. And they say, well, yes, now that you mention it, I have noticed this, and it does seem to be related to the AI. 
I got to say that I, to be honest with you, I mean, maybe it was, I'm sure it's in the paper and I'm sure it's in your editorial. I can't even read anymore. You know, I, I just <laughs> listen all the time. I just ask you guys about the papers. I don't actually read them anymore. But I thought it was really weird that they did not look at people who were not on AIs or specifically on tamoxifen because in the attack trials, like almost 30% of the women who got tamoxifen had arthralgias. Well, I think that, you know, you make a good point, which is without a strong comparator group, it's hard to know how much of this is either from any anti-estrogen intervention or just some concurrent baseline nonspecific arthritic type condition, which, as I said, is very common. I'll make a couple points along these lines. The first is that in the pivotal trials that looked at AIs vis-a-vis tamoxifen, the incidence of profound musculoskeletal difficulties was generally around 15 to 20 percent. But each of the studies defined these in different ways. And so it's very hard to look at the toxicity experience in the major trials, which really were looking at case report form reported severe toxicity and relate that to the experience patients are having. Secondly, there are a wide spectrum of actually severity to these symptoms. Some patients say, oh, yeah, you know, it's a small thing. It's not a big deal. Other patients, a minority, but a few patients are really quite uncomfortable or disabled by it. And I got to say that having treated many women, I think there clearly is more of this overall problem than there was historically with tamoxifen. But again, anything that produces estrogen deprivation may cause this. So there's a classic paper from the Mayo Clinic group in the 19, late 80s, early 90s in the JCO where they were reporting what they called chemotherapy-induced arthritis. And that turned out to be a series of eight or 10 women, all of whom were in their late 40s, who had chemotherapy, who had presumably had chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea and menopause, and then began to develop these significant arthritis symptoms. So it's not that this is only a problem with AIs, but because we're using so many of these drugs, it clearly is more And the other thing you can ask about is, for instance, do patients' rings fit as well? That's another thing that sometimes suggests some of the thickening of the digits that you see with this. Patients will tell you, oh, their wedding band doesn't fit as tightly as it used to or things like that. So, again, I think it is fairly prevalent. I think that the numbers that your survey suggested that only 10% of patients really require a major change in therapy, that feels about right, I got to say. I mean, it's only the minority of patients who have major problems, but it's not zero. So there was another study at ASCO this past year where they looked at a chart review of patients who were discontinuing AI therapy. This was done up in Ottawa, Canada. And about 20% of patients were discontinuing prematurely the use of aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. And the single largest cause were AI-associated symptoms, and the largest instance of that was musculoskeletal problems. So I think for a minority of patients, it will be a real thing. Now, one of the questions is, what do you do about this? We all talk about acetaminophen and nonsteroidals. I got to say, anecdotally, it's not clear that those really help that much. What does seem to help has been some moderate level of regular exercise. And patients that I see frequently who can get some exercise often do find that this alleviates some of their discomfort. And we are actually very excited about a clinical trial we're beginning in early OA where we're going to have a placebo-controlled intervention study to alleviate these symptoms. Our strategy is similar to the success that Chuck LaPrinzi has had at Mayo Clinic looking at hot flashes. So we're hoping to use some novel agents to try and pharmacologically treat these symptoms and using a placebo-controlled trial design, try and tease out which ones might really work. And it's interesting, about two-thirds of both the oxen practice and investigators recommend exercise for this situation. More of the investigators actually refer to rheumatologists, which I thought was kind of interesting. The other thing that came out in that paper, and we actually asked people about the issue with you alluded to of arthralgias from chemotherapy, but I was really struck by the incidence of arthralgias specifically with taxanes in that paper. Has that been reported before? 
Yeah, I'm not aware that other groups have similarly looked at that. So in this paper that was in the JCO, they did find that taxane-based adjuvant chemotherapy seemed to increase the risk of musculoskeletal complications. I got to say, I'm not sure that's my experience in clinic. And the answers that you had from your survey respondents were all over the map on that one. So I think more data are needed here to really tease that out. I wonder, too, about the issue of steroids and whether or not getting steroids for a pre-medication in some way might you know, alleviate low-grade arthralgias or arthritis, and then you stop the chemo and the steroids and it sort of bumps back? Is that possible? That could be. Certainly, paclitaxel is associated with a myalgia syndrome, typically arises four to five days after treatment. Patients who are getting growth factor support often have some bone marrow swelling and get that diffuse muscular skeletal achiness that happens about a week into the treatment often. So these are a fairly common set of symptoms amongst breast cancer patients these days. Well, it's going to be interesting to see your study. I wonder about massage and stretching, although I know that probably wouldn't help with the hands and feet, but maybe with the larger muscles. Have you had any clinical experience with that? You know, certainly in the clinic, we have patients who swear by some of those things, and I'm not aware of any real data on those points, but I don't think there's any reason not to pursue them if people are interested. I swear by it, and I'm not even on an AI, (laughs) you know? (laughs) All right, next topic is the complex world of the Oncotype DX, and I find people in all the other tumors are jealous of breast cancer that this exists and are looking, I guess colon might be the next one to come along. But what we try to do here was tease out the issue of age, and particularly the issue of tumor size and how it integrates with recurrent score in terms of how people make the decisions. Again, this sort of biology versus pathology type issue. Can you sort of provide an overview of how you approach patients with ER positive, node negative, and HER2 negative disease and where Oncotype fits in? Well, let's just try to set the stage. What we're witnessing right now is a transition time in our approach to early-stage breast cancer where having reached this sort of reductio ad absurdum in the NSABP B20 trial, which was a study of ER-positive node-negative breast cancer given tamoxifen or tamoxifen plus chemo, where it looked like in the aggregate chemotherapy was helpful. This led in the late 1990s at the consensus conference at the NIH in 2000 to the endorsement of chemotherapy for all women who had breast cancer greater than one centimeter of any kind. And yet, we've always known that the likely benefits of chemotherapy were not uniformly distributed across all patients. Some women clearly need chemotherapy more than others based on the intrinsic biology of their disease and the risk. And one of the other confounders that we've never adequately addressed has been the ovarian suppression effects of chemotherapy. So there's been this lingering idea that we can do more refinement to figure out who needs chemo and who doesn't, but we've lacked potent tools to figure that out. We've not lacked all tools. And so in retrospective subset work, it's been clear that older women get a little bit less benefit from chemo than younger women in absolute terms, that women whose tumors are strongly estrogen receptor positive get less benefit from chemotherapy in addition to endocrine therapy than do women whose tumors are weakly estrogen receptor positive, that HER2-driven disease clearly needs chemotherapy more than HER2-negative disease. So there have been all these clues out there But we have yet to have something that really empowered people to feel confident that we could identify who needed chemotherapy and who didn't. And so in the past 10 years in the United States, there has not been a single trial where women weren't given chemotherapy that was looking at early-stage breast cancer. Well, one of the great things about the Oncotype DX assay from Genomic Health is it seems to be a tool that in the data put forward so far allows us to really better inform that decision 
Does this patient who's going to get endocrine therapy really need chemotherapy or not? And I think it's a testimony to the power of the tool that for many patients and clinicians, this has been a practice-changing diagnostic assay, even if it simply integrates information we've already known, ER status, PR status, HER2, grade. It has integrated in a fashion that allows people to make treatment recommendations differently than they would if they didn't have this piece of data. So I think it's a great time to be exploring this kind of work. I think there's every expectation that this tool will be shown to be similar principles in node positive disease as have been established in node negative disease. And I think you'll see more and more of use of this tool or tools very similar to it to really help us individualize our treatment program for early stage breast cancer. So let's talk about how that tool gets translated to practice. And we put together, I think it was kind of a cool case of a 45-year-old woman with, a, again, 0.8 centimeter tumor that's ERPR positive, HER2 negative, node negative, the oncotype type situation. And she does have a high recurrence score of 35. So first question would be, what would you recommend specifically to this patient? And then we presented a first opinion, which we'll get to in a second. So basically, in terms of what people recommend, we'll start with the chemo. So the first thing is that almost everybody recommends chemotherapy in this situation. But then in terms of the specific selection, I thought it was very interesting that by far the most common choice was TC, particularly in the investigators, but even in the docs in practice. What about the issue of chemotherapy in this patient? What would you likely be recommending? Well, the point of ordering the Oncotype DX in a patient like this is to see if you get either a low or a high score, because a low score would suggest she really doesn't need chemotherapy. A high score would suggest she really does need chemotherapy. And an intermediate score would have narrowed the potential range of the benefits of chemotherapy, but still leaves you in an indeterminate posture. So if I'd ordered this test and gotten this result, I certainly would have recommended adjuvant chemotherapy to this patient based on that score. And which regimen? So none of these regimens actually have been explored in combination with the Oncotype DX assay in the reports that have come out from the NSABP B20 study. That study was built around CMF and MF chemotherapy. I think most of us would just use our typical node-negative adjuvant regimen. Ours happens to still be AC, given typically every two weeks. If people wanted to give TC, I think that's an okay regimen, but it's not the one that we routinely use. You know, it's really interesting because we know from our previous patterns of care study that by far the dominant type of chemotherapy used in node-negative HER2-negative tumors has been AC, either dose-dense or not. We're really seeing a shift, and I think this case exemplifies it, although it is a high-risk case towards TC. But it's interesting that people shifted towards that and not so much towards anthracycline taxane in that situation. Then the other question is, the second opinion, the same exact case where you just said you'd give chemotherapy, but the first opinion has been, okay, just hormone therapy. How strongly would you feel? Would you turn around and say to that patient, you know, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. You should get chemo. Well, some of this comes down to patient preference. And I think that if this was a patient who said, I realize that I have a relatively small tumor, I realize it's hormone receptor positive, and I'm going to get endocrine therapy. I would need a 10% overall improvement for me to want to get chemotherapy. You're at the margins there as to whether it really makes sense. So you talk to the patient. But all things being equal, for a tumor like this, again, I think the internally consistent answer is that she should get chemotherapy and that it actually will help her more than we historically have imagined chemotherapy might. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. If you think about it, this is a 0.8 centimeter tumor. 
And yet people feel so strongly about this that actually the most common answer we got to the second opinion was, I don't really think that's a good idea to skip chemo. So it's amazing how much people have come to trust this in really just two, three years. Well, people were often given chemotherapy for these cases no matter what. So the NCCN has been collecting data on practice patterns for node-negative breast cancer. And in the node-negative population that's ER positive, the biggest determinant of whether or not people recommend chemotherapy is tumor size. And the second is patient age. So for a young premenopausal woman, even with a tumor less than one centimeter, at the NCCN institution, something like 30% or more of doctors were giving adjuvant chemotherapy. And I think more people prior to the Oncotype DX would have given chemo than your survey suggests. The other thing that's interesting about these two cases is the hormone therapy. Because it's interesting, even though this is node negative, now we have in their mind, based on the recurrence score, that this is a higher risk patient which does relate more to chemo, but it's interesting when you look at the hormone choices. So for the premenopausal patient, we see a little bit of a split between tamoxifen for five years and then switch to an AI, obviously assuming there's postmenopausal compared. And the other choice, which is almost actually even a little bit more common, but those are the two main choices with tamoxifen for a couple, two, three years, and then switch to an AI. What do you generally do in this situation? And what do you consider sort of acceptable? Well, let me make a couple points here. The first is that the same data, the exact same data that tell us that chemotherapy is more important for this woman than we historically have imagined, also tells us that tamoxifen is less valuable than we've historically imagined. And the equalizer here is the chemotherapy. But the real reason these women don't do well without the chemo is because they don't have tumors that are that sensitive to tamoxifen. In fact, the curves almost overlap. So while all of us would still give adjuvant endocrine therapy to a high oncotype recurrence score tumor, it's surprising how little there seems to really be in the way of benefit for that. Since she's premenopausal, I think the answers in your survey reflect the desire to give her tamoxifen initially, which I would agree with because it works irrespective of her menstrual status or her menopausal status. And then what I think they're describing is this idea of switching her once it's clear she's menopausal. And so in two or three years after her chemotherapy or in five years, I guess, then you know, the expectation is she would be menopausal, they would switch her to an AI. We don't really know what her menopausal status would be after four cycles of AC or TC when she gets these treatments in her mid-40s. And so in clinical practice, actually, this is something you would have to see what's happening as time goes by. And interesting also getting into what's acceptable and not acceptable. We put this second opinion situation that the patient had gone to an oncologist who recommended in terms of the hormone therapy and AI plus an LHRH agonist. And most people actually we're not comfortable with that approach in this situation, although, you know, anywhere from a third to a half were. How would you feel about that as a second opinion? Yeah, I actually feel pretty strongly that is not a preferred option for patients. Right now, the so-called TEXT, T-E-X-T trial is studying young women, premenopausal women, giving them either ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen or ovarian suppression plus an AI. So we will have data in the future for whether AIs are as active in younger women as is tamoxifen if you give them ovarian suppression. At the moment, we don't have such data. And the real worry here is that a small fraction of women may not have complete ovarian suppression with LHRH agonist therapy. If you've treated many, many women with this, you know that a couple of percent of them actually won't functionally shut down their ovaries. And so you run the risk, if you treat them with AI plus LHRH agonist, of giving them no effective endocrine therapy. So I would start with tamoxifen if they were still premenopausal and you wanted to consider ovarian suppression. I think that's reasonable. And only when they are truly postmenopausal, would I consider switching them to an aromatase inhibitor? 
I think one of the biggest controversies right now in terms of endocrine management of the premenopausal patient is just this situation where the patient stops menstruating with chemotherapy. And we presented a woman with a, you know, who's 40 years old in premenopausal who stops menstruating with chemotherapy. She continues to be amenorrheic clinically, and you want to use an AI. And our statement was, in this situation, if you monitor the estradiol, FSH, and LH, it's an effective way to determine menopausal status in terms of making this decision. And I love the way the answers splay out, like with like everybody completely in major controversy about what the right answer is. What do you think about that? Yeah, I actually think that the right answer is to say that these are not adequate for measuring menopausal status. And I think there are pretty good reasons to believe that. The standard of care for a young woman who has breast cancer is tamoxifen. And there is good case report experience that many of these women in their early 40s or younger will actually recover menstrual function, ovarian function, in the months, even years after their chemotherapy. And in those same cases, monitoring of FSH and LH at a single time point doesn't actually tell you what's going to happen in the future with their ovarian function. So both our group and Ian Smith's group in London have published cases of women just like this where they'd gone into menopause with chemo. Everybody thought they were in menopause. They were started on an AI. In many of these cases, their FSH levels were actually in the postmenopausal range. And it turned out that they recovered ovarian function and were not getting effective endocrine treatment in the months, even years ahead. So I actually feel pretty strongly that the correct answer here is tamoxifen until there is unequivocal demonstration of menopause, and single time point or even serial time point measurements of FSH and LH really don't tell you what's going to happen for these women in the future. They are not adequate for this. And so I discourage the monitoring of these, and I discourage clinical decision-making based on those measures. Let's talk a little bit about another big question that comes out in terms of endocrine therapy is what to do at five years in the patient who's on an AI and particularly the patient who's doing well. And so we asked a couple of scenarios. I think we have seen in these surveys a huge shift in this. I don't know whether, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is that's promoting it. The trials are out there. The data is out there. But a couple of years ago, nobody was keeping AIs going at five years. And now, for example, you present a node-positive HER2-negative case, and half the docs in practice as well as the investigators would keep a 65-year-old woman going on that therapy, even at age 80, even though it drops off, still a quarter of people would keep it going at five years. Again, we're saying people who are doing generally well. When we drop it down to no negative, we say more age 65, more 25 to 40 percent. But clearly, it looks like this is now an option in a non-protocol setting right now that people are considering. There are two great questions in postmenopausal day-to-day practice management for the endocrine therapies right now. One is, is there still a role for tamoxifen? And the other is, what really is the duration of our therapy once you introduce these AIs? And there's nothing profoundly new about these questions because before we had data from the NSABP B14 extension and before we had the data from the Scottish trial, patients were often getting more than five years of tamoxifen. It turned out that at least based on the literature we have so far, that was not clinically valuable. We need answers to the question, does extending adjuvant therapy beyond five years of an AI improve on long-term clinical outcomes? We have no data on that point whatsoever. There are studies that are going on from the NCIC and from the NSABP that are rigorously asking that question. They're taking women who finished five years of an AI and re-randomizing them or randomizing them to ongoing AI therapy or to a placebo. So there will be data, but there are none right now. What we can say is that we have a large safety experience 
experience for five years of treatment. Parenthetically, I think that one of the cleanest of the AI adjuvant trials to interpret is the MA17 study, which was the study of five years of TAM followed by a placebo or an AI. Clearly, switching to an AI was helpful. That study demonstrated that and also reawakened us to the importance of the second quinquennium, the second five years, and then the third quinquennium, third five years after diagnosis. And if you now really conceptualize of hormone receptor positive breast cancer as a disease with a 10, 15-year latency period, then it is quite possible that ongoing durations of antiestrogen therapy with AIs might be helpful, but we don't actually have that data. In contrast, we do have data that a successful strategy could be five years of TAM than five years of an AI. Well, what are we doing in clinical practice? There are several different patient populations that we see. For women who finished five years of TAM and then five years of an AI, there certainly are no data that longer than 10 years total is valuable, and we usually conclude therapy at that point. For women who've had a couple years of TAM and then five years of an AI, now they're out to years seven, eight. I don't have a big problem extending them to year 10, but again, only the five years of AI treatment is the only duration we have safety data for. For a woman who starts an AI at year zero, there really are no data that ongoing AI treatment would be helpful. We all thought we knew that tamoxifen indefinitely would be helpful. That turns out not to be the case so far. It's not clear whether ongoing AIs inevitably would be helpful, though they do seem to be well-tolerated. So the other thing we know is that in clinic practice, you've got several different kinds of women. You have the women who three years ago circled a date on their calendar that was the date they were going to finish their adjuvant endocrine therapy, and they've been counting down since then. And for such women, you know, I think it's very reasonable to stop treatment at that time. And then there are women who feel fine or who may not feel so perfect but would love the idea of taking something because it feels very reassuring to them to take some treatment to try and prevent breast cancer recurrence. For those women, I don't have a major objection to extending the duration of treatment with the AIs, but we really don't know how valuable that is. Agree or disagree, the second case scenario you just described is way, way more common than the first scenario the woman wants to stop. I think that's right. You know, as we're now five or six years into the AI era since the report of the ATAC trial, there are now increasing numbers of women we're seeing every day who are finishing those five years of an AI or two to three years of TAM and then five years of an AI. And many of them would happily continue on. And hopefully they are being actively put onto these clinical trials because that is such an important question.